0: Would you take your Bible and turn, please, once again, as we conclude this short series on the life of Elisha, turn to 2 Kings 13, verses 14 to 21. The theme has been the best of things in the worst of times. It just seems like every day, every week, we have some new audacious, unbelievable thing happening in our country or our world. And these, I don't know if they're the best of times, but they'll do to something comes along that's worse. To be the worst of times. But Elisha reminds us as the man of God, as he's called, that you not only can run the race, but you have to finish strong. To finish well, John Wesley said about his Methodist, Our people die well. When I was in high school and running distance, our uh, coach said to all of us, but particularly the guys running the distance races I don't care how tired you are, you have a kick at the end of the race. You must have a kick. At the end of the race, that's sprinting as fast as you can, as far as you can to end the race. That means no dogging it, no walking, no complaining about the course, the track, or the referees, or the umpires, or the other coaches, or the other runners, or anybody, but running the race. And this is why Paul the Apostle, at the end of his life, just before he's beheaded by Rome, said I am ready. the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith let 's look at elisha as he finishes well. Would you stand as we read the Word of God together in chapter nine chap, excuse me chapter thirteen, beginning in verse fourteen and i 'm reading from the New American Standard Version. When Elisha became sick with the illness with which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. He said, open the window toward the east. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram. For you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, Take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground, and he struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it, but now you shall strike Aram only three times. Elisha died, and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. As they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band. And they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Has to be the most unusual miracle in all the Bible. Let's talk about a kick at the end of the race. Would you be seated, please? Now, as humans, we run a challenging course, but also with a goal at the end of the race. We're not just running haphazardly, as Paul would put it, not shadowboxing, not beating in the air, but we run the race, the course that the Lord has laid out before us. Now, we do have our struggles. One, of course, is old age. Elisha is at the end of a long life. Let's just put it, he's a senior citizen and beyond. And he is sick with a terminal disease, a sickness that will take his life. Uh, There will be a time, one out of, Uh, one that we can't imagine when Jesus will come back. And those who are alive and remain, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, will be raptured. We will be caught up with him and meet those who have gone before in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord. We could be that generation and not see physical death. But we may not be. We're all getting older. You know, there are three signs that you're getting old. One is loss of memory, and the other two I can't remember right now. (laughs) You know, I just had a birthday last week, and uh, I am uh, getting older, just like you. But I'm so glad that there was not one candle on the birthday, monkey bread. That's way better than a birthday cake. There were several candles, but if it was just one candle, the reason I don't like that is two, one of two things. One, it could be somebody trying to tell me, this is your last birthday. Or, and this is even more insulting, that my family don't think I have the strength to blow out more than one candle. Could be true. But we're all experiencing getting older. But then there's sickness. You know, out of 19 miracles, and there could be even more, of course, in the life of Elisha, but we know of about 19. That's why we didn't cover all of them. There's so many. But in, in the life of this great man of God, there is no unusual supernatural miracle now as he's about to die. No one came along and prayed over him and raised him from his bed. No one came along and said, now you're not going to die, just keep confessing your healing and rebuke the spirit of infirmity. Wisely, no one did that. But all of us have a tendency to get sick in one way or another, and then there's death. Now, death is not... For the believer, the end of the road, but the bend in the road. There's so much more. Now, none of us gets excited about dying. I mean, really, if you're being human. Uh, One Puritan said, The long habit of living indisposes us to dying. We're really not in the habit of thinking about dying. Dr. Criswell was the great legendary pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas. Janet was a member of that while we were in seminary and would drive over here uh, to Dallas and hear that great man of God and the great associate pastor, Dr. Jimmy Draper. And what a great time. That's when we met was on the way to First Baptist Dallas. Little did I realize that I would pastor out of seminary, a church not far from where Dr. Criswell had his first pastor at age 18, the First Baptist Church of Devil's Bend, Texas. 41 members in the church. And they had what I had in another country church that I pastored, an ginner. How many know what an againner is? You're all from Yankee land. And againner is somebody who stands up in the Baptist business meeting and says, I'm again it. <laughs> now, there was an againner, and somebody made the motion in Dr. Criswell's church that they build a fence around the cemetery. And sure enough, the guy that sat on the front row stood up and said, I'm again it. And somebody said, Well, why would you be against a fence in the cemetery? He said, Do you know anybody that can get out of the cemetery? And do you know anybody that wants to get in to the cemetery? Motion defeated. (laughs) There is a habit of dying that some of us don't want. But I love the words of the great missionary, Jim Elliott. When it comes time to die, make sure there's nothing else left To do. We make preparation. Amos 4.12 says prepare to meet your God. Yes we must get ready. Who knows the day or the hour. Having come through that just a couple of years ago. Coming so close to dying. I may have a sense of humor about it. But I do not have a sense of lackadaisical apathy about it. We must be ready. We must realize what Matthew Henry, the old commentator, said, He who has his head in heaven need not fear to put his foot in the grave. Now, sometimes people die early. We call it prematurely. Not necessarily in God's planning, but there were those who died at an early age, like uh, Jim Elliot, Peter Marshall, Dawson Trotman, who founded the Navigators, David Brainerd, the great missionary to Native Americans, another missionary, Henry Martin. They died at an early age. And then there are the old saints like Elisha and Billy Graham. It's in God's hands. Our times are in His hands, not ours. But there is also another struggle that we have. It's the struggle of obscurity. It has been, according to scholars that I have read, about 40 years since the last mention of Elisha in chapter 9, verse 1. 40 years. What was he doing during that time? Did he backslide and go to the far country as a prodigal? Of course not. He was being faithful, doing what God called him to do, saying what God wanted him to say. But there is no mention of him, and perhaps no miracles. After all this amazing supernatural activity, we don't read about him until this last chapter. Obscurity is a hard thing for many of us. Some of you came out of a very successful career in the corporate world. Or the professional world. Some of you were widely known. And recognized. And you come down here. And now you're known for your golf score. Or your bingo play, Or whatever. But we're not in the limelight. Obscurity is a hard thing for many of us. I love the fact of Deacon Philip. Philip that... First, One of those first seven deacons in the book of Acts. And uh, he was a mighty man of God. And then he went to uh, the desert and had an amazing evangelistic encounter like Pastor John's talking about. The Ethiopian accepted Christ, was baptized in water, and went back to Africa as a missionary. But here's the amazing thing, we don't see anything or hear anything else about this great Christian layman Philip for years until finally in Acts 21 verse 8, we read that Paul visited him, he had gone from the desert to Caesarea, settled there, he had four daughters and this passage says they were virgins who prophesied. Now, don't get worried about that. I don't know what they were prophesying. The Bible doesn't say, but they were proclaiming the message of the Lord. And they stayed pure as young ladies for the husband God would bring into their lives. But they, the Scripture refers to Philip as not the deacon, and it says he was one of the seven. It calls him the evangelist. He is Philip the Evangelist from the Sumerian Revival all the way to that day. He was winning people to Christ. He was being faithful with the Word of God. In obscurity, but in joy and faithfulness. Thank God. That's what we want to be. But then there is a goal Not just the struggles, we have the promise of heaven. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. What a great passage, I'm excited. John's going to talk about Paul. There's so much to say about the great apostle. But in Philippians chapter 1, I love this passage. Listen, in 21 to 24. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh this will mean fruitful labor for me and I do not know which to choose but I am hard pressed from both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now what is he saying here? Uh, He he is seeing not the problem of dying, but the opportunity, not just as an exit, but as an entrance into eternal life. To me, to live, he said, is Christ. Christ living in him and through him. Manifesting again his public ministry through the apostle Paul. That's the way God wants all of us to be. But he said, Such a deal already. My friends from up north, they understand that phrase. Such a deal. You can't lose with this deal. As a matter of fact, when he uses the word gain, in the original language, this word was a word for profit and interest earned. So that when Paul died and went to heaven, he cashed in. He cashed in and got more in principle and interest in terms of blessing and reward than he would ever have had in this physical life. Now, you see, the problem is we're headed toward home. He said, I'm departing to be with Christ. The word depart is a word that was used for death. Paul said, the time of my departure is at hand. There as he was awaiting, beheading. The word meant to sail away as a ship would. That word means that though the ship is out of sight, it's not gone. We say, oh, the ship's gone. No, it's just out of sight. Paul said, I'm headed toward my heavenly home. And he would say in that fourth chapter of Second Timothy, God will bring me safe into his heavenly kingdom. That's his heavenly harbor. He's going to depart and be with Christ. That word also means the loosing of a yoke. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you my rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And so Paul had been wearing that yoke of surrender to Christ, allowing him to lead as uh, as Lord and Master. And when we die that yoke of surrender is released into absolute glorious worship and praise. Because he would be with Christ, he's headed toward home. Every day they say at least 150,000 Americans die. That's apart from pandemic figures. Every day, people are dying. But most are not ready or anticipating going home. When I was in Mississippi this week, I took a day to drive down and see my relatives. And all of a sudden, nine cousins and their spouses showed up for the buffet at the Trail Boss restaurant. (laughs) And we all talked. I hadn't seen most of them. And crazy enough, they all looked old to me. Three were my age. But anyway, we went out to the old home place where most of us had sort of gathered over the years, had been renovated. It was that old home place of my Aunt Brancy and Uncle Ansel where I learned to shoot all kinds of guns, hunt snakes, and ride horses. And I would get one of those horses and be way out in the woods. And I'd be out doing things as a boy. And when I would head that horse toward the stable, guess what happens? He starts trotting. He's ready. He is headed toward home. He is ready for a feed. I mean, he wants that bit out and that saddle off. And that horse just naturally picks up his gait, headed toward home. Most of you understand what I'm talking about. And the believer is headed toward home. Amen. To die is gain. What a blessing, what a joy for the believer. I got to know Zig Ziglar out in Texas, the famous motivational speaker who was a good, strong Baptist and taught a Sunday school class at First Baptist Dallas. And you would ask Zig, How are you doing today? And Zig would say, better than good. That's pretty good. But those who don't know Christ don't know that wonderful anticipation. Because you see, we are absent from something, and we are present with someone. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. What what an amazing thing. Absent from pain and temptation and sin. Cut loose from all of that. Present with Christ. I can't wait. Aren't you excited? He will bring you safe into His heavenly kingdom. Because death cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Romans 8 makes that clear. Nothing... Nothing, no one, no thing can separate you from the love of Christ, even in the most difficult dying experience in the ICU or on a lonely country road or in battle. He will not let you go. Present with Christ here even more. Better gain with Him there. For me to live as Christ and to die is just more of Jesus. The Beatle, George Harrison, sang a song years ago when John was a boy, My Sweet Lord. And people thought he was now a Christian until they realized that Hare Krishna is Hinduism and not Christ. George Harrison faced cancer, and he said that his, quote, faith helped him in that struggle. It may have helped him in one way but it won't cut it at the judgment day because he did not know Christ as Lord and Savior and whether we die in the Lord in one place or another the believer I don't care how much struggle you've been through the angels are waiting to escort you into his presence because Gain is with Jesus forever. Now there's a pressure. You notice that Paul said, I'm hard pressed. I'm hard pressed. Literally, the word is held together. It's pressure from both directions. I'm, I'm constrained, as he would use the same word, about the love of Christ. But I am held together by this pressure of wanting to go to heaven and the pressure to continue on in fruitful labor with those on this earth. We all feel that pressure. And we have that passion that Paul said. I desire to depart, he said. In verse 23, uh, Philippians 1.23. That word means constant passion. I, I, I don't get up in the morning without wanting to go to heaven, he said. But I know that God has left me here for a reason. And one day he said, I will be present with Christ. That's not soul sleep. That's not purgatory. And that's not annihilation. It's in the glories of heaven with Jesus. We know today what Elisha did not know. Elisha, I believe, went to paradise in heaven. No doubt about it. The man of God. But he did not have the revelation that you and I have of the Scriptures and the final redemption of Jesus Christ, saving us from our sins. But here's the second very important idea. As Christians, we are challenged to run well and finish strong. We deal with the course and the goal and all the the struggles that we have. But at the same time, we're to run the race well. As good as we possibly can by His grace. Now, Elijah was confronted with royalty. And then hunted by royalty. They would never rejoice in his passing. (laughs) But Elisha had a different story. He had a different kind of ministry. And all of a sudden now Jehoash, the king, comes to his deathbed and mourns over him. He is mourning even using the same language that Elisha used about Elijah. My father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. The same exact words. I hope that they will say about me what I have said about others when I die. I hope there will be that same commendation. Because Elisha, just like Elijah, ran the race well. We are so lacking heroes today. We are so lacking those who are courageous, godly, and competent. In every level of life, we happened onto a weird uh, action movie on the way to the home network. And uh, it was an old movie called The Expendables. Uh, action flick with the old action heroes of the 80s and 90s, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, and Chuck Norris. I would have called it the Over the Hill Gang. But not to their faces, no. We don't need heroes like that. We need men of God like Elijah and Elisha. Who stand for what's right regardless of the consequences. Who do what's right regardless of who knows or applauds. One day uh, Balaam said, let me die the death of the righteous. May I my end be as theirs. Numbers 23, 10. But he was not willing to live the life of the righteous. That's the only way you can have the death of the righteous. Because the righteous, their end is a win. Our end is f- crossing the finish line as a winner. In this little meeting I was in in Tupelo, Elvis's birthplace. And they make a big deal out of that there. But there was a man that came a couple of times to the meeting. And I met him before the service, but he was sitting on the back row. And the pastor later told me, he said, I have visited this guy about five times, and he's never come to church until this week. And I could tell God was working on this man. And we gave that public invitation, as we will today, but he held off. And finally, I turned it over to the pastor at the end of the last service on Wednesday. And he went for three more invitation song verses. And finally, on, on the, I think, the seventh verse of Just As I Am, this guy gets up and comes forward and prays with the pastor in repentance. And then he wanted to say something to the church. He said, I told the pastor, don't quit working on me. And he said, I have repented, and I want to make up for lost time. And I talked to him afterward. God has been at work in that man's life. And I pray he runs the race well. But Elisha is speaking to a man who is not a hero. A man who was a mess as a king, Jehoash. And so here's my third important point. As Christian citizens, we challenge others to run well. And you see that in verses 15 to 17. Now let me mention a few things. We need to stay with the issues or stay up on the issues like Elisha. He's near death and still concerned about his nation. He's still aware that there is a, an enemy out there called the Arameans or the Syrians. That's the, that's the driving thing in the last hours of his life. To help that king do the right thing and the God thing. We, we get burned out, don't we, on our citizenship. We are confronted with bad news on every hand about the mess we're in. And we realize that the DC swamp doesn't just have snakes, it's got gators. And what else? Big snakes. Bigger snakes. And I I find myself being frustrated, don't you? I find myself again and again wanting just to write it off and say, Lord, the pythons are too much and have bred. In every part of our culture. And then the other tendency. Is to be fixated on it. And all you think about is how bad it is. And what can we do? There are things that we can do. And I want to say to you as a citizen. As a person who loves this nation. Elisha was a prophet. And a patriot. You can be both. There is a tendency right now among the younger generation to not be patriots as you and I understand it. I'm not putting down anybody here under 50, believe me. But I'm just saying there is a, I've watched it. We used to have people that didn't want to have the American flag in our church building. Because they thought we were idolizing the nation or the government. You can be a patriot and a prophet. It wasn't good or bad. It was God. That's who mattered to Elisha. But he still loved his nation and believed God had a plan for them. And then we need to stir up vision. Elisha knew he would be off the scene soon. But children and grandchildren would still be there. And so he had an audacious plan, something I've never heard of or thought of, He said to King Jehoash, take a bow and arrows. Now just as an aside here, uh, I believe this was Elisha's uh, personal uh, property, his bow and arrows. He couldn't shoot it anymore. He was well familiar with the bow and arrow. So he had, had there in his room his own personal protection. But he trusted in the Lord as God most of all. But he said, take this bow and arrow, and I want you to open the window and toward where Syria is, I want you to fire an arrow. I want you to shoot that arrow toward Syria. And he did. The arrow of victory, Elisha called it. The arrow of the Lord. That symbolized how God would defeat that enemy nation. He he made sure that Jehoash steadied that bow. We put that old hand over that man's grip on the bow and helped him steady it. I used to be at a bow club growing up. My dad's 55-pound Ben Pearson bow, we had to string it ourselves. And old Elisha couldn't string it anymore. He couldn't fire it anymore, but he was holding the hand of that king And some of us are saying, but what can I do? You can pray. You can vote. You can speak to the issues. You can do whatever God leads you to do in this nation. We can't give up the vision of the city on the hill. But then he said, take those arrows and strike the ground. And the king struck the ground three times with the arrows. And then the old man got mad. He was righteously indignant. He said, you should have struck it five or six times. Now you will only defeat Aram three times the number you struck. Oh, if you'd only struck it as many as possible. Why did he say that? He was showing him a vision of what God wanted to do. And then he pointed out his flaws. You see, the problem with this weak king, he was just like his father who had a foxhole religion. He prayed when things got rough over in chapter 13, verses four to six. You can look at it. Hey, oh, God, if you just help me, if you just deliver us. And then as soon as there was victory, he forgot about God. He did not get rid of the idols, including the sexual idols, the Asherah. He was a fair-weather king with God. You can't bargain with God. God knows your heart. He knows if you're hot-hearted and uh, fully committed to the Lord or if you're just faking it. He pointed out the flaw that this man followed an inadequate model in his father. He pointed out, he exhibited insincere devotion. He was just... Humoring the old codger prophet. He didn't really believe that an arrow struck or an arrow shot made any difference in life. There are so many who say, uh, that little simple prayer, that won't do anything. What can one vote do in an election? What can one testimony do to make a difference in someone's life? He didn't get it. But it does make a difference. And then his incomplete vision was such a fatal mistake. You know, Elisha ministered to a widow. You go back to chapter 4 of 2 Kings. And he had already raised her, uh, he later raised her her son from the dead. But she was about to be eaten up by the creditors. And uh, excuse me, I'm getting my widows mixed up. There are two different widows in that chapter. And the one who was so uh, poor, they were about to take everything she owned, and she pled with the prophet. He said, All right, take whatever vessel you have in this house and go get oil. And then go get more oil, however you can get it. All the containers you can find, get all the oil, sell it, pay off your debts. And live on the rest. But you know what? She only had a few vessels. Only a few that lasted a period of time. If she had gotten more vessels, who knows, maybe OPEC would be buying oil from her descendants today. <laughs> but there are so many who say, you know, prayer doesn't do anything. I talked to someone this week who, uh, and I understand. That prayer makes a huge difference in us. We are changed. And the old issue, do we change God's mind? No, we don't change God, but God has a plan. And some things are open. And he says, if you will do this, then I will do such and such. If you, then I. And you see this all throughout the Bible. God says, I want you to elevate your vision and call to me and I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know about. Jeremiah 33.3. 3. And so, the man of God did one more thing. In his death, we need to pass on the legacy. Not just point out flaws, but pass on a godly legacy. And so, when he died... They buried him in an open kind of tomb, as they often did. His bones, his tattered remains were still there when a burial party of Israelites came to bury an Israeli man. But a band of marauders came upon them, and in their fear and haste, they threw that corpse into Elisha's grave and took off. Without fully burying him, we'll thank the Lord. Because as the scripture says, the moment he hit those bones of Elisha, he was raised from the dead. It's never happened again. But God did it then. And he reminds us today that it is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that gives us the hope of heaven, the strength to deal with the struggles the passion and the purity and the purpose to be what God wants us to be in any era, in any situation. And just like Jesus, was Elisha, just think about his burial. Jesus was cast into a tomb that was open at front, betrayed by his friends, left for dead in a borrowed tomb, People who are afraid of the pagan army more than their love for Jesus, but he rose from the dead. As the angel said, he's not here. He is risen as he said. He's alive. And we are raised with him. We walk in newness of life, Romans 6 says, because we have been buried with him in the baptism of death and raised in resurrection power. And we walk in newness of life. Well, how do you make a difference? I close with this story. In 1912, John Harper in England was called to be the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. He and his little daughter, Nana, boarded the Titanic to sail to America when it hit that iceberg in the Northern Sea and began to sink. John Harper put little Nana, a six-year-old, in a lifeboat. But he himself did not get in. He gave his life vest to another man. And he ran up and down the decks as some survivors lived to tell about this story. And yelling, uh, women and children and the unsaved in lifeboats. He knew they weren't ready for death. He witnessed as many as he could as the ship broke apart and he and others were in that icy water. He was clinging to some wreckage and he still witnessed and he would go from one person to another, cleaning the wreckage saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved again and again in freezing water. And when he came to one man, he asked that question. The man said, no, I haven't believed. And then suddenly uh, a wave pushed John Harper away. But then in a matter of seconds, he came back to him. He said, are you still unsaved? Yes, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And suddenly Harper sunk beneath the waves. And that man believed in Christ and was only one of six rescued from the water by lifeboats and people that were half filled and people who didn't care. He lived to tell the testimony. He said, I was John Harper's last convert. One more time. Let's pray. We need to live to be what God wants us to be. This could be my last message on earth. God may give me more, more time here. I don't know. None of us knows the time, so we need to redeem the time because the days are evil. We need to be what God wants us to be every chance we can. I pray that you will make that decision today to live is Christ and die is gain. Do you know that you have eternal life? How many would say to me right now today, Hayes, if I died today on the way home, I know that I have eternal life in heaven with Jesus. How many could raise your hand and say that? all right lower your hands thank you thank you for your honesty some of you were honest enough to not raise your hand because you just didn't know there was a time when I couldn't raise my hand and I talked to the pastor afterward he said you can settle it tonight and I did you can know the Bible says you can have that assurance of salvation And right now say, Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I want to turn and repent of my sins and trust you alone for salvation and accept your eternal life. Thank you, Lord. You can pray that if this service ends before I step down on the floor. If you prayed that with all faith and sincerity, you can know heaven is your home. Some of you say, but Hayes, I really, I need some more help in understanding that. But we want to be here for you. I'm going to ask Pastor John if he would just stand out the front. He's been praying for you all this time. Lord, have your way with us. May your will be done, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.